Welcome to From Betrayal to Breakthrough. I'm Dr. Debbie Silber, and today's guest is Arielle Ford. Arielle is a leading personality in the personal growth and contemporary spirituality movement. For the past 30 years, she's been living, teaching, and promoting consciousness through all forms of media. She's a celebrated love and relationship expert, author, and speaker. Her mission is to help people find love, keep love, and be love. Arielle is a gifted writer and the author of 11 nonfiction books, including the international bestseller, The Soul Being Secret, Manifest the Love of Your Life with the Law of Attraction. She has also written many groundbreaking books, including Turn Your Mate into Your Soulmate, A Practical Guide to Happily Ever After, and Wabi Sabi Love, The Ancient Art of Finding Perfect Love in Imperfect Relationships. Her debut novel, The Love Thief, will be published June of 2023. Ariel coaches private clients who are seeking to manifest the love of their life, write their first book, or pursue a new passion. So today, I usually don't interview fiction authors, but this book and this author is an exception. You're about to meet my friend and celebrated thought leader, Ariel Ford. And if there was ever a story about betrayal, heartbreak, recreating yourself and forgiveness, it's this one. Enjoy this conversation. Here we go. Okay, everybody, you are in for such a treat today. We have my friend Ariel Ford here. There are so many amazing things we're going to be talking about, but one of the reasons why I adore her, and you will just see how amazing she is, one of my favorite books of all time, absolute favorite books that turned my life around was Conversations with God, book one. When I met Ariel and she said that she was the one who published, got that book published, I said, she is my forever friend. So we are going to be talking about her latest novel and so much more. Welcome, Ariel. Thank you, Debbie. I have to start with this story because this is something I've never experienced. And I have shared this with you and I want to make sure all of our listeners and viewers hear this because that's how great your newest book is. We're going to dive in and talk all about it. I was on a plane and everybody knows I go back and forth between New York and California. Well, I was on the plane and I told Ariel that because I had a, a copy of the book beforehand and I said, I'm going to read this on the plane because what a better way to, I mean, is there any better way to spend your flights? I'm going to read this entire book on the plane. So I get on the plane and I start reading this book and my husband texts and he says, oh, I heard your flight's delayed. Yeah. And I'll let you know when I take off. Well, about an hour later, he says, you know, what's going on with your flight? And I was like, oh, it's still delayed. What a pain. I was so engrossed in this book. I had no idea the flight actually <laughs> took off and we had been flying for about 40 minutes. That's how good it is. So <laughs> yeah, Ariel, just give us a little bit of background on first why you wrote this book, and then we'll get into the details about it. I had never had writing a novel on my to-do list. I had written 11 nonfiction books, but never ever gave it a thought. They're different worlds. And then one day, the first line of this book showed up in my head. My mother was right. And I'm thinking, right about what is this? And then the story started coming to me like a movie inside my head. And I was like, go away. No way. I am not going to write a novel. And the story kept coming and coming. And at the same time that happened, I got an email from masterclass.com that they had a new course, 
How to Write a Thriller with Dan Brown. And Dan Brown's my favorite author. I thought, oh, this will be fun. I'll get to hang out with Dan Brown. So I sign up for the course. In the meantime, this movie is unfolding in my head. And I see that it's taking place in Rishikesh, India, a place I've been to a few times, but never really thought a lot about. I get to the third video of the Dan Brown course, and it's titled Location as a Character in the Book. And he's talking about how Florence was a character, Florence, Italy, in the Da Vinci Code. And then I think, oh, my God, if I were to write a novel, which I'm not going to do, then Rishikesh would be a character in the book. So it keeps happening. And finally, I had my own conversation with God. I said to God, I don't want to write a novel. But if I'm destined to write this novel, then somebody's going to have to give me a business class round trip ticket to India, which is about $7,000. So if that God, if that happens, if I manifest this ticket, then I'll write the book thinking I'm safe. This is never going to happen. Two days later, I run into an old business partner of mine. It's like, hey, how are you? What are you up to? I said, oh, I'm trying to manifest a trip to India. And he says to me, when do you want to go? And I tell him when I want to go. He looks at his calendar and he says, I'll take you. Because we had been to India together once before. I said, are you kidding? He said, no. He said, I'm doing really good this year. I'll take you. The day before we're supposed to go, he calls me. I can't go, but you've got your ticket. Go. Have a great time. Which was perfect because I actually didn't need him. He would be a distraction. So off to India I went, and that was the start of a four and a half year journey of writing my first novel. Just amazing. Okay, so let's start with the tagline because the tagline says, He broke her heart, crushed her dreams until karma intervened. So, what's this book about? This book is about a 38 year old woman whose entire life she's been dreaming about getting married, having children, the whole white picket fence. And now she's 37 and three quarters, and it hasn't happened. And she's a chef in San Diego, and she's catering her first big Rancho Santa Fe gala. And at this event, she meets Prince Charming. And he basically sweeps her off her feet, and magic happens, and they get engaged, and everything's wonderful until it isn't. And he's the one who ends up breaking her heart, crushing her dreams, and she ends up going to India to study Indian cooking as a way to heal herself and magic and mystical things happen and her whole life changes. Everyone who listens and watches this podcast, they know, I mean, the whole idea of the narcissist and even the sociopath. And this is something that unfortunately many of us are very familiar with. Let's talk about the villain a little bit because he's pretty evil. He is a nasty and I had a lot to work with when it came to designing him. Because having experienced that myself and watching three of my friends, all very beautiful, successful, spiritual women, also be taken over by a toxic narcissist sociopath and being on the other end of those middle of the night calls when they're sobbing hysterically or raging out of their minds and watching the roller coaster of emotions, all I did was mash together the men that screwed them over. And I had plenty of my own emotions and those of my friends to work with of what my character Holly was going through and how devastated she was and how she thought her life was over. You know, like she so desperately wanted to be a mom and yet all her dreams were crushed. 
and I always talk about the five stages from betrayal to breakthrough. And in the book, you actually, you watch Holly as she moves through the stages. And it's so beautiful because the stages don't switch. You just outgrow one. You don't leave any of them out. And to see her moving through from one to the next was just so beautiful to see. Give us an idea, just a little something of some of the things that Holly learned on her trip through the stages and through India. Yeah, I think the biggest lesson, which I had several early readers point out to me was missing in my book, was that she got to forgiveness, not with the guy, but with the woman. He ended up betraying her with her best friend and business partner. And so she hated the woman equally to hating the man and thought there's no way she's ever going to forgive them. And through her journey and everything she went through, by the end of the book, she really does get to forgiveness with the friend. And really bad things happen to the fiance. (laughs) But really, karma does intervene and she does get resurrection. And karma always happens, everybody, but you know it happens when it's good and ready. And I always say closure is your job, justice is karma's. So just on its own time, that's when it usually happens. What's a lesson you want everybody to know from this book? I know what the lesson is. I don't know that anybody ever really learns it, which is if it seems too good to be true, then it is. Because the red flags were there for her all along. And the opening line of the book, my mother was right. Her mother warned her from day one. Her mother saw it and said to her, listen, what he's doing here, this isn't good. I'll I'll give you one example. Their actual real first date was he takes her to Budapest from San Diego because he's on a mission to buy some art for his parents' very high-end collection. And he sends her an Excel spreadsheet telling her everything they're going to do and what to wear for everything. Like a moment by moment, here's what you're going to need. Here's what we're going to be doing. And the mother says, don't you think that's a little controlling? And she's like, what are you kidding? This is like the most generous thing ever. I'll be so prepared. I know I can't wear my torn up yoga pants in Budapest. So that's, I would say, the biggest lesson. If it seems too good to be true, it usually is. As I'm sure everybody listening to you already knows, you know, these guys are charming and they can fake emotion and they know how to whisper in a woman's ear everything she ever wanted to hear. And then you have sex with them and then you get bonded with the oxytocin and you fall in love. And then who they really are shows up and you're constantly chasing, oh, I want what I had. I know the good guys in there. I had that experience. And now I'm being gaslit every other minute. All these other things are happening to me. And you're stuck in this constant push-pull of wanting what was, which of course was never real. And then, you know, being constantly so feeling so broken and horrible. And the thing that I've learned now that I'm 70 years old and I've been on the planet long enough is that these type of men only go after smart, beautiful, successful women. So if you've had this experience, there's a way in which you can reframe it that you're really special. They don't go after ordinary women ever. They target. You are prey. So you have to be even more careful. So that means really taking your time. So if you think your eggs are drying up, 
Go freeze them for God's sakes. Don't be making lifelong decisions based on the thing we call being in love. Because being in love is only nature's greatest drug eye. It has no resemblance to real love. And most women don't want to hear this. But the state of being in love is what I call the socially acceptable form of insanity. Wow. Okay. And here's the thing. Everybody loves that feeling of, wow, it's just, I'm being so cared for. I'm being so seen. I'm being so heard. I'm being so valued and honored. And it's not real. It's just not real. And then you're right. And then all of a sudden it stops. And then we want more of it. And that's the trap right there. And this is deliberate, everybody. This is deliberate and intentional. And here's the thing to know. I'm friends with a woman named Dr. Helen Fisher. She's the world's leading love biologist and anthropologist. She runs the Kinsey Institute. She's a consultant to bunches of online dating apps. She has found through her research that overcoming a broken heart is harder than overcoming a cocaine addiction. I believe it. Yeah, absolutely. Because just all of the emotions, all of the neurochemicals, the neurotransmitters, everything just gets involved, the dopamine, all of it. So tell us some red flags. What are some, because I know there are so many people listening, watching this that are saying, holy moly, I keep going from one narcissist to another. And here's the thing. It's not that it's good. It's that it's so familiar. So tell us some red flags. Well, the speed at which they move. Okay. So you go from, oh, we just met to seven days later, you're the one I've been looking for. So they know exactly how to talk to the hole in your heart, the part of you that's yearning and craving that kind of connection. And they get really romantic and they set up these incredible dates and they focus all their attention on you in a way that you've always wanted, but you never had. So if it's going really fast and it feels really good and it feels like there's champagne bubbles going through your nervous system, you're screwed. That's like the big warning system because here's what you need to be looking for. If you want a happy long-term marriage, then here are the things that you need. And they don't feel as fun as being in love, but ultimately they will. So you need connection, compatibility, good communication which can be learned, chemistry, which is actually the least important. There needs to be some chemistry, but if it's the super hottest sex you've ever had, chances are he's not the one. And the single most important predictor of a long-term happy, healthy marriage is a shared vision of the future. You want the same things. That doesn't mean you're together all the time. You're doing all the same things on a coast or you both want to live in the mountains, and you both want children. You know, like certain huge lifestyle factors need to be in alignment in order to have a long-term happy relationship. That makes so much sense. And I know everybody right now, they're like, well, wait a second, maybe I had one of those or two of those with my relationships. So the idea is take a look at those things, connection, compatibility, communication, chemistry, and shared vision of the future and see which ones of those you have with your partner right now and what can you do to turn that up a bit? Part of it is it takes time to get to know somebody. There's no rushing into this. You really need to take your time. You need to ask clarifying questions. If they say something that kind of has you shudder, then you want to be nice, but you want to ask, oh, 
I think I heard you just say X, Y, Z. Is that what you meant or did I get that wrong? And then if something comes up that's like today, politics is really important. It used to be people didn't talk about politics so much. But in the polarized world that we live in, if you're a bleeding heart liberal like I am, and suddenly you're dating somebody who's a hard right winger, thinks Trump's the greatest thing on the planet, that may be an indicator that you have different values. If honesty and integrity are really important to you, it takes time to get to know. Because one thing we know sociopaths are good at, you know, is like, I watched this with one really good friend of mine. She would hear from ex-wives and ex-girlfriends all the stuff that he would do. And then she would confront him. And he would say, half of that is true. And I'm really working on becoming a better man. And when I'm with you, I'm a better man. They know how to speak into your listening in a way that's so ingratiating. Oh, it's not a total lie that he didn't tell me about wife number three or that he lied about his age by seven years or all the other things that they do. But what happens is once you have sex with somebody and the oxytocin gets released and you get the bonding, suddenly you're willing to forgive just about anything. You know, you're already in there. They've got the looks. They've got the lifestyle. The sex is good. This is what I've been waiting for. And you so want it to happen that all reason goes out the window. It's like I just pictured that scene in Moonstruck where Cher snap out of it. I don't know about you, but I've certainly tried to warn friends in this thing and they don't want to hear it. They think they're going to be different. It's the same thing like when I'm coaching authors and I try to talk to them, listen, you've got to have a platform before you even have the book. You're never going to sell any books. And they think they're the one person who's going to get discovered and suddenly be an overnight success. It just, life isn't like that. So if you want to spend your life with somebody and you want somebody to be a father or a mother to your children, then you need to really take your time and take the baby steps and ask the questions and meet their family and meet their friends. And if they're in addiction recovery, that makes it twice as hard. And there's the other piece of this too, where it's like there's a combination of that's not true what you're saying and I don't want to hear it and see it. And then there's the, I can fix them. I can help them. I can help them. Talk to us about that. My experience has been most people never really change. And I know that because I look at myself, right? I have done every workshop known to me in my career as a book publicist. Here's who I represented. Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson, Wayne Dyer, Neil Donald Walsh, Don Miguel Ruiz, Gary Zukoff, Louise Hay. Everybody in the self-help world was my client. I took their courses. I read their books. I promoted their stuff. And at the end of the day, am I a better person for it? Yes. I have more tools to heal my monkey mind and to deal with my own mishigash. And my core wounds are still there. So people don't ever really change. They can get a little better. They can find fixes. But at the end of the day, if they're a lying, low value, no integrity person, that's what you got. And I also have seen that most men reveal who they are very early on. And we don't want to believe it or we think we can fix it. And I'll tell you, though, in the betrayal world, because this is what I see every day, the narcissist sociopath that you're talking about, you are absolutely right. But I have also seen 
we have many betrayers in our program, in a rebuild program. Those are the ones who crash and burn and wake up just like the betrayed. And those are the ones who, you know, they, for whatever reason, woke up and saw the light and became someone they're truly proud of. And I thought that was impossible as well, but I changed so dramatically. So it made me think, well, if I could truly change, what's stopping the betrayer from truly changing? So I guess it's really the spectrum of how far gone are they? That's where there is that possibility or there is not. Let's talk about now. I know you went to India and you had some pretty mystical experiences yourself. I've been to India, I think, nine times now. And the first time I went was in 1996 or 97. I was working with Deepak then. And he took me on this amazing trip for his daughter's wedding in New Delhi. And people had told me beforehand, oh, when you get to the New Delhi airport, when you walk outside a custom control, it's going to be a whole new world. I can't even describe it to you, but just prepare yourself. And it's like, how do you prepare yourself with something people can't even describe? So I walk out the customs door and there's like thousands of people, women in brightly colored saris, dirty cows walking by, music, there's cars honking. There's fog and it smells like kerosene. It has this particular smell and it's just this chaos. And I fell madly in love instantly. It was like some people like to go to Disneyland. I can't go to Disneyland. It's too clean. It's too cookie cutter. It's just not interesting. But India for me is what Disneyland is for a five-year-old. It's so colorful and the sounds and the smells and the taste and it's magical. And in fact, I was on another trip with Deepak and we were in the south of India getting ready to walk around a mountain. It was a 13 kilometer circumambulation of Mount Arunshala under the full moon of Pongo with a half million people. We were walking with a half million people. And at one point, Deepak turned to me and he said, it's impossible to avoid spirit in India. It's everywhere. And it's true. Just things just happen. On the trip to Rishikesh, all this stuff that I'd been seeing inside my head as a movie, I tripped over when I got there. I kept seeing this old, dusty, spiritual bookstore with sagging shelves and hardly any light. And it was dark, but interesting. The first day I was there, I walked into that store. And I love I walking the character who's in the bookstore. Yes, yes. His name is Deepak. He's not modeled after Deepak Chopra. But Deepak is a very common name in India, like the name John or Jim. Uh-huh. So I named him Deepak. And he's a mashup of a lot of teachers that I've had and shrinks that I've had. He's a, a retired therapist and the owner of the bookstore. And he becomes Holly's, what I call love walla. He's there to help her through this difficult time of hers. Rishikesh came alive for me because it was the first time I was there where I was making notes. What does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it taste like? You know, what does it feel like to be the rushing waters of Mother Ganga when being at the ashrams or ashrams on both sides of the river everywhere? So I was able to capture all that just like Dan Brown taught me in that course and then turn it into the book so that the reader can have the same experience of what it's like to be in India. Beautiful. Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about happiness. Why is happiness not the goal? Yeah, I spent a lot of years studying happiness and focused on happiness and really wanting to be happy. 
because as a child and a teenager, I was depressed. I was suicidal at times. I was on antidepressants. I was a miserable person until I turned 28. And then one night I had this epiphany and I decided that I could choose to be happy and I was going to find out how to do it. And I spent years doing it. And along the way, I discovered I did get happy. I no longer had depression, or if I did, it was over in a few hours. But what I discovered, my happiness was based on people, places, experiences, things, mostly things out of my control. Oh, I'll be happy when this happens. And then I'd be happy for a while. And then that would go away or something would change. And I thought there's got to be something better than happiness. And I was studying a thing called the Sedona Method back then. And the guy who oversees it, Hale Dwoskin. And Hale said to me one day, Ariel, the goal is not happiness. The goal is utter contentment, regardless of what's happening. To be able to be centered and at peace in the midst of chaos, utter contentment. And then as I continued to study, I discovered there's a word in Sanskrit called santosha. Santosha means utter contentment. So that's one of the things Holly learns when she's in India, that she's been seeking happiness when the truth is we all know life's a roller coaster and it has ups and downs. But in the midst of the downs, could you get back to contentment? And I was actually dealing with this morning because something going on at the release of the book was just all wrong and really driving me crazy. And I thought to myself, I have no control over this. What I have control of is could I just release my attachment to having things go the way I thought they were going to go? Could I just re-embrace my contentment? And it took about an hour. I had to work on it and just let go of expectation. I mean, this is one of the reasons I love Don Miguel Ruiz's book, The Four Agreements. Never make assumptions. Always do your best. That's the suffering, right? That's where all the suffering comes in with the attachment. Yeah. Attach, we're not suffering. And then people say to me, well, you teach law of attraction. How can I be focused on manifesting a goal? And now you're telling me to be detached. And it's a paradox. So you have to be both. You have to say, oh, X, Y, Z is my desire. And I'm going to focus on taking baby steps to my desire. And simultaneously, I'm going to be detached and release my attachment to the outcome. Because otherwise, I'm driving with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brakes, and it's stop and go. And it's hard. It's hard living in uncertainty, which is what we've all had to come to terms with the last three years. And and I'll tell you, I remember that in conversations with God, where God said, it's not in the outcome, it's really in the creation. That's the joy. That's the bliss. It's not in the attachment at all. You'll remember in conversations with God book one and Neil is homeless and he's screaming at God. I just want my life back. And God says, Neil, you can't have anything that you want. Mm -hmm. You can't have anything that you want because when you're in the state of wanting, the message you sent to the universe is lack. Mm -hmm. So if you can be grateful for the fact that you had food today, more food will come to you. The same with many women in love. I just want to be loved. And what I teach them to do is, here's the process. It's the daily gratitude process. Every day, I want you to 
focus on your heart. And I want you to think about all the people that you love, that love you, and then send them a wave of love and fill yourself up with all the love you already have. Because when your attention is on the abundance of love you already have, then your heart becomes magnetic to romantic love. Do you know that's something that I learned actually from Louise Hay, and it's something that I do all the time. If I'm walking on a busy street or something, do you know I'm sending out little love beams to everybody? And I want to see, it's like a little fun thing. And I'm like, let's see if they felt that and they look at me. <laughs> it's my own little thing. And sometimes they do. Everything is energy. You just never know. You just never know. So it's real. Yes, yes. And lately what I've been doing, when I go for walks, I don't bring my phone. But lately what I've been doing is with every step, I acknowledge something I'm grateful for. Grateful for how green the tree is. Doesn't have to be anything big, but right. I, I focus on gratitude. And my gratitude is when we go on walks together, I just love your stories. Ariel has so <laughs> many stories. <laughs> and there's, I know I'll be in for at least three, four good ones on our walks. What do you want to yeah. make sure everyone knows as we wrap up? I think the biggest thing I want people to get is that there's manifestation and law of attraction and trying to make shit happen in your life. And then there's destiny. And if you can let go of wanting to control and manifest every last thing in your life and just receive destiny, things that you can't even imagine are going to come to you because your imagination isn't big enough to bring it in. So if you're focused on, oh, I just want to manifest this client or this one thing, as opposed to thank God for all that I have, bring it on universe, what else are my arms wide enough to embrace? So there's that paradox as well. And it's so true. There, It's so much more than what we know. It's such a limited perspective when we just have this idea of, well, it should look like this, because what if there is something so much better? And there usually is. Where do we go to learn more about you and the great work you do? And where can we find this book? You can go to my website, which is my name, arielford.com. Or if you want to know more about the book, it's at thelovethief.com, thelovethief.com. And if you go now and you pre-order the book, because the book's not out till the end of June, pre-order it. I have created this amazing Healing the Heart yoga video series with 10 of the world's top yoga teachers, including people like Sean Korn, where there's poses for healing a broken heart, learning to live with uncertainty, overcoming physical pain, releasing anger. So it's just all the big emotions that are in the book. There's a healing yoga pose for it. And that's what the bonus is. Oh, that's so great. So everybody grab a copy of the book. My suggestion Read it on the plane. Don't read it at the gate because you'll likely miss your flight. Ariel, thank you so much. I know this book is going to be such a gift, such a blessing to everyone who reads it. So thank you. Thank you for your wisdom and for you being you. Thank you. As many of you have experienced, hopefully, now you know you're not alone in the idea that overcoming a broken heart is harder than breaking a cocaine addiction. And it can be done. Stay in touch with Ariel by going to arielford.com and we'll have all of her information in the show notes at thepbtinstitute.com forward slash podcast. Here's my biggest takeaway. 
the state of being in love is a socially acceptable form of insanity. And for a successful long-term relationship, you need these five things, connection, compatibility, communication, chemistry, a shared vision of the future. Also, please watch out for those red flags when entering into a new relationship. If it seems too good to be true, trust your gut, it probably is. Of course, if you couldn't resist and you need support to heal, that's all we do at PBT. So head over to thepbtinstitute.com and let's move you through the five stages from betrayal to breakthrough, just like Ariel's character Holly did. Who knows what it'll lead to? Thanks for listening. Can't wait to be with you next time and here's to your breakthrough.